0: Welcome to a new podcast series from Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences faculty at Queen's University, Belfast. A podcast series examining the debate around constitutional futures. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law at Queen's and I'll be chairing our conversation today. The focus of this episode is on the political implications of the debate for the island of Ireland and these islands terms of political parties and the role of civil society and civic engagement in particular. Really, really delighted that another distinguished expert panel joins us today to uh, share their reflections. I'll say something uh, briefly here about our panelists today. Mary Murphy holds a Jean Monnet Chair in European Integration as a lecturer in politics with the Department of Government and Politics, University College Cork. Mary specialised in the study of the EU and Northern Ireland politics. John Garry is Professor of Political Behaviour at Queen's University of Belfast and leads the Democracy Unit, a research centre established in 2019 focusing on the study of democratic theory, institutions and behaviour. His research interests focus on electoral and deliberative democracy. Lisa Witten is a research fellow at Queen's and a member of the post-Brexit Governance NI project team Examining the implementation of the Ireland Northern Ireland Protocol. Michael Pearce is a senior lecturer in the School of Arts, English and Languages at Queen's, and his research focuses mainly on the area of class in Irish studies, particularly in terms of literature. I just want to start by thanking you all for agreeing to participate in this podcast series, and we're really looking forward to hearing your thoughts, reflections, and to the discussion to come. The theme of the episode today is what the future holds for politics on the island, Uh, politics in this sense broadly uh, defined. In a sense the aim is to reflect on where politics is on the island now and with your uh, crystal balls and prediction hats on where we might be heading uh, in terms of these debates in the future. As you all know and as I don't need to tell you or the audience, this comes at a time particularly intense consideration of constitutional futures across these islands so uh, it's well overused but it's a, a timely discussion indeed uh, for us to be having I'm going to start with very keen to hear your thoughts and reflections on what you think about the current state of the debate around these questions particularly the current state of the political debate around the conversation on constitutional change, either for or against. I suppose the question I'm really starting with today is, do you think the debate at the moment is in a, a good place from your perspective? And if it's not in a good place, maybe you think it is in a good place, but if it's not, what would you like to see change? And we'll start with John on that question. Huh.
1: Um, okay, I get the short straw, I have to go first. Um, I would first of all focus on the the kind of um, the phrase you use, whether something is good or bad, Colin, and I, I, uh, I, I suppose I would say, let's imagine that we seek to learn some possible lessons from the Brexit referendum experience. And let's assume for a minute that we don't think that that was a perfect democratic exercise, irrespective of whether you're pro or anti the EU there'd be a large consensus saying that could have been done a bit better, irrespective of what side you're on. And one of the reasons people think it could have been done a bit better was that um, the, the ref- a referendum happened, it had a result, and then there was a lot of confusion, acrimony, and divisiveness in the years that followed. In large part because um, the, what people voted for, they voted for change, the alternative to the status quo, and that wasn't clearly specified at the time. And one might think that if Brexit had been very clearly described at the time, you could have avoided the years of confusion and bitterness and acrimony. Now, imagine a Brexit referendum with that post-referendum confusion, bitterness and acrimony on the issue of a United Ireland. Just imagine it. (laughs) You think Brexit was bad? That that would be really unclever, probably, to have a referendum in which you ended up with years of confusion after the result. Um, so one there'd probably be a lot of people who would agree that clarifying what the question means in any theoretically possible referendum is something we can all probably buy into. And so let's take that as a normative good to, to, to get from to, to hang to hang something substantive on the word good in, in, your, in your opening question. That then brings us to um, the demand to specify what a United Ireland is. And hardly anyone knows what the hell that is. In the same way that nobody knew what the hell Brexit was until it happened. And then you have years of argument going, what is this phenomenon? Um, So I would say the debate is not in a good place if you want to learn the lesson from Brexit, which is to specify the alternatives on the ballot paper. And what that means is that we need to spell out the different models of united ireland, specifically the most the, the couple of most credible models or types of united ireland, which is, you know, an integrated model which I can talk more about in due course or we can, all can, um, or a model of united ireland in which northern ireland continues to exist in a devolved entity. There are many different possible types of united ireland, but I think those are the two most credible ones. And I think what's interesting for this debate, if we're planning a smooth democratic exercise which involves specifying the choice, do we all agree, whether you're unionist, nationalist, anything else, that we need to specify and articulate in some detailed way what the alternative to the status quo actually means? And I would say we probably do. Or, final comment, if we don't, then what we need to do instead is to specify a democratic process that would happen directly after the referendum, which would come up in a shortish time frame with the specific model of a United Ireland that would occur if people vote for a United Ireland in the referendums north and south. So model specification would be consistent with goodness and learn the lessons from Brexit.
0: Thank you, John. Um, Lisa, is in your view, is the debate in a good place at the moment?
2: Mm. Um, so perhaps building on what John has just said, and uh, to indulge in a slightly stereotypical academic move, I do think it would be helpful to to kind of think about what how we understand constitutional change, what the constitution is, and and the way that it can change. Because at present, I would say our political debate around this is polarised. And can be divisive, um, and it is very understandably ends focused on that central question of for against a specific constitutional change in respect to United Kingdom versus United Ireland, um, and that I mean that that follows from the 1998 agreement and the remarkable provision in there for an exercise of um, popular consent to change effectively a secessionist um, kind of process. But that is also not the only thing that constitutional change um, is and it's not the only kind of constitutional change that Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland engages in um, on a more regular uh, basis. Um, Constitutions broadly understood are the most important rules and principles according to which we are governed um, and they change remarkably regularly. Research suggests actually that 19 years is the average lifespan of a constitution. Um, and the constitutional change therefore happens quite often and on a spectrum of, of relevance and significance. For example, Brexit, um, the implications of UK withdrawal from the EU sparked a number of constitutional level changes for the UK and for Northern Ireland. Um, And I could go down a rabbit hole of different examples, but I don't mean to be facetious, but I think um, recognising that our constitution can and does change in many more ways than just that which will relate to for or against UK or United Ireland could help widen our political debate, kind of draw in some of those more substantive issues that John was indicating, and engage in policy and policy challenges that are pressing currently in respect to health, education, justice, the environment, things that affect all of us regardless of which jurisdiction we're in on the island of Ireland. And that's not to say that which jurisdiction we're in or which passport we have or can access aren't important. It's just that I think the debate, the quality of the debate could be helped by broadening it out to bring in some of those um, policy issues that can impact on constitutional change broadly understood um, in terms of the evolution of our governance um, and could get closer to kind of good governance outcomes regardless of one's perspective um, and kind of start to to de-dramatize um, what is already and at present can be divisive because it is so ends focused if that's
0: that's great Lisa and yeah we're, we're definitely having an academic discussion when we're talking about all the terms in the question that was asked and so john and good and you know exactly what do we mean by constitutional change as well as what we mean by by good michael i hesitate to say this but is the debate in a good place
3: (laughs) yeah like obviously we're in a bad place in terms of public debate generally at the moment um you know brexit unleashed an awful lot of acrimony uh, an awful lot of anger and uh, an awful lot of divisiveness and i suppose Add austerity to that. Adds the, you know, the reality of demographic change, what's happening here, the Lucid Talk poll, etc. You know, it d- develops panic. And we've seen even with, in relation to COVID here, there's been a lot of unedifying debate, a, uh, a lot of disinformation, a lot of issues around trust in, you know, public intellectuals, trust in experts, all that sort of thing. We're in a very difficult place in this kind of post-Trump era uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. So, you know, I I agree with what John said about the dangers here of what we're getting into and the kind of debate we're going to have and the necessity of ensuring that it's as informed and as reasoned and as calm as possible. Um, You know, to some extent, we're in the denial stage of the debate in the sense that Quite a lot of people and quite a lot of unionist leaders, you know, even we saw with the questioning of the Lucid poll this week, you know, kind of focus on the messenger rather than the message. Uh, We're we're kind of in a phase where people really don't want to talk about this or want to pretend it's not happening or say it's very unlikely. And I've seen a lot of unionist leaders say this, that it's unlikely to, to come to pass. And of course, what we know is that it is very likely that there is going to be, at some stage in the future, it may not be in the next number of years but at some stage in the future there is going to be a a choice over the constitutional question and that we do need to be really informed about what that is because it could be a very exciting period I mean one of the things we saw in Scotland um, when you know we had the referendum in 2014 once once the referendum was called in a way the discussion around separatism went by the wayside and what I mean by that is people weren't discussing you know Uh, what would have been a very boring debate about uh, simply why we want to leave England behind Um, people were discussing what kind of future they wanted so we saw an awful lot of discussing what do we want a a new Scottish NHS to be, what do we want their education to be like should students be paying fees in universities all these sorts of things were opened up um, by the prospect of a new constitutional future and if we could have that in a context where we're well informed, where we've looked at all the options, where we've asked, are there ways to ensure that uh, unionists who are fearful of the prospect of, of, of uh, democratic change on the island um, are, uh, are, are given a range of options, are given a range of possibilities, which may cushion that, may make it more palatable a better prospect from their perspective and may give them a, a sense of comfort as well that this isn't about, um, you know, it isn't, it isn't about some sort of a victory, that it needs to be about uh, a new society where we all um, find that our, you know, a pluralistic society where we all find that our place is respected within it. Um, so I think it would be, as John said, unclever to have a referendum without robust Research without us looking into this in the kind of detail it hasn't been looked into, and we are beginning to see the emergence of that with the Irish government funding research on kind of various aspects of constitutional futures, various aspects of model model specification, and that's quite hopeful, I would think. You know, Um, we can hope to see, I think, a debate where obviously it won't be an easy one, but at least we can do the very best we can ensure that it's an informed one uh,
0: thank you Michael Mary
4: uh, thanks Colin um, maybe it's a function of 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 where I am geographically on the island but I would actually query the extent to which there is a constitutional debate the extent to which that's happening and how engaged people are by that debate because from from my perspective it's, it's a debate which has not captured the public imagination Um, It doesn't seem clear that that people, citizens, are invested in it. It really is a debate thus far, at least, which is being led by specific agents. You know, people like ourselves, perhaps, um, the media to a certain extent, um, and and elements of civil society as well, for sure, um, and also maybe one or two of the political parties on the island. Um, I, I, I think it will be very... I mean, I think it's very difficult to have this debate until there's clarity about its timing and it's only when we have that clarity about when we might be asked that question I think that people's minds might become you know overtly focused um, on on the kinds of questions and challenges that you've all pointed to Um, and and that timing is difficult because there's you know there is a reticence uh, amongst some constituencies on the island to having the debate at all So Unionism, for example, is the classic classic case there, but I mean I would also point to the Irish government and and the hesitancy which we've seen in relation to to their uh, their engagement with these particular questions. And and one thing that that I'm um, sensitive to as well is that um, there's a sensitivity to unionism and how they're perhaps not ready for this debate, not interested in this debate, fearful of this debate, but I also think there are other constituencies on the island of Ireland who are similarly fearful about this debate. and I think you'll find many of them on this side of the border. Um, in Northern Ireland, discussions about the constitutional future they're 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 like permanent discussions and have been permanent features of Northern Ireland's political landscape and political dialogue. You know there's no tradition of that on this side this side of the border so, so engaging with these kinds of conversations, I think, is something that, 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 that certain constituencies are maybe a little bit more afeard of um, than, than we, we might otherwise um, assume. So um, I think the constitutional debate is, is in its very early days. And, and ultimately, I think the ratcheting up of that debate is something which will come with time when we have clarity about when precisely the question might be posed.
0: Th- thank you Mary and I suspect the next question follows on a bit from what we've just been discussing in terms of you know evidence and preparation and a well informed conversation and also questioning where the debate is actually at at the moment or whether there's a debate at all Sure. But, um, uh, maybe slightly unfair I, question to uh, ask you, but uh, I'll go ahead I mean, anyway again, I uh, suppose are if the political I parties on, on, political parties uh, on the, the, the island of? Ireland? Uh, doing I, I, enough I really to prepare the themselves
4: this is an issue of any and
0: the for electorate for these the conversations, given how much you've all focused on and much more the need for a well-informed and debate. And I'm, I'm really Irish come back to Mary on that to start. start. I mean,
4: the housing crisis is, is the one which is um, at the top of the headlines right now. And, 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 and because of that, um, I would query the extent to which political parties have either the capacity or um, or even the inclination to engage with this issue. Um, to what extent is this issue a vote winner? You know, um, if, if you're to ask, and again, John might be able to speak to this a little bit more, but in terms of polling citizens about the issues which are important to their everyday lived experience, um, I, I would hazard a guess that the constitutional futures debate is, is fairly low down that agenda and political parties will react to that. Um, so the extent to which it's appealing to the electorate, I would question the extent to which political parties are, are going to react to that um, is something we should bear in mind. And, and, and then the other point to make about this is in the Republic of Ireland, all of the political parties aspire to Irish unity. You know, so, so there's no point of division between the political parties on that question. So, you know, to what extent is there a debate to be had? Certainly there's a debate to be had on, on the mechanics and on the specificities of constitutional. Uh, the constitutional future, um, but but for for political parties themselves, I'm I'm not entirely persuaded that this is something that um, they have given any substantial amount of thought or consideration to.
0: Maybe just a quick quick follow on Mary would be what you made then of Neil Richmond and Jim O'Callaghan and and le- recent statements by Leo Varadkar and what might be you know underpinning those interventions.
4: Um, I. Think what some of the dynamics at play there relate to um, party politics down here and and the rise of Sinn Fein in particular, um, and and responding to some of the issues which Sinn Fein are putting on the agenda. And I think to some extent as well, it speaks to those those individuals and those political parties maybe trying to do a better job at communicating their position on, on, on the Irish unity question and reinforcing their aspiration to Irish unity. And they certainly are giving more considered um attention to the issue but but i'm not sure I, I mean i i would suggest that it's being led more by individuals within political parties than it being an issue which is galvanizing the political parties and um, in in their own right
0: thank you mary john
4: yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> i shall follow on um i'd like to just pick up and on, on on a point mary um made when when mary kind of said look the 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 debate might get a bit more detailed when we know about the timing and if if we knew about the timing then things would would kick start and I think there's a bit of a kind of chicken and egg situation here and we, the, a, a referen- the the person who will call a referendum in northern ireland is is basically the british the u k prime minister formerly Secretary of State for northern ireland but um and the Secretary of State of Northern Ireland could do so tomorrow. They have discretion to do so anytime, but also they have a duty to do so as per the 1998 agreement when it seems to them that the evidence suggests that a majority would vote for United Ireland. So it could happen any time. Now, the, 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 and then there'd be, that have to be, you know, um for United Ireland to occur, there'd have to be con- concurrent referendums, which... Um, could be interpreted as simultaneous but could equally plausibly be interpreted as chronological in Northern Ireland first and then in the Republic of Ireland and they co-occur in the sense of being substantively the same rather than um, simultaneous. So from an Irish perspective and it's hard to know whether Colin's question related specifically to Irish parties but it's hard to know whether to focus on parties government or state. Ireland, however politically, whatever the political actor is, at some stage in the game will have to say something. Um, they'll have to say they'll have to choose to do so earlier or later. At the minute it looks like they're not going to say anything at all, which means they're going to s- about about what their view is of what a United Ireland would actually look like. And if they keep that position, what they're essentially doing is saying, we'll have the referendums and then we'll work it out afterwards. This gets back to my opening points about how to avoid the Brexit stuff. If they keep to that position, then what's really crucial is to have a very clear idea. If you're going down that path, about the day after the referendum, when you haven't had this debate, you haven't specified the type of United Ireland you want, and people in Northern Ireland vote for it, and then there's a referendum in the South and they vote for it, what are you actually going to do then? And at the very least, if you don't do specifics beforehand, you've got to do process specification beforehand, which is to say the day after the referendum, we're going, what's going to happen is we're going to have this process uh, to, 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 to clarify what's going on. And this is really crucial because the Mary again mentioned the point about unionist engagement in this. And one way to look at unionist engagement is they won't. Unionists won't engage. Why would you engage with a process that you don't want to occur? But if you have, if you leave it until after the referendum to specify what type of United Ireland you want, if people vote for it, and say there's going to be a constitutional convention in which people are elected from all over the island and then they, within a year, clarify what, what kind of United Ireland you want. If you take that approach, that's consistent with unionist engagement precisely because you're not pre-specifying it. And you could make a virtue out of that by saying we'll have this constitutional convention after the referendum if a United Ireland is voted for. And we're doing that because we want unionist engagement. So the so the, the, the real difficulty is the is is the chicken and egg stuff going on here between nationalist and unionist and you've got two states involved, you've got Dublin and London involved. And it's like a game of chess. Nobody quite knows how to make the first move on this. Um, for, and for the additional reason that everyone's terrified, if you make a move, you're going to really annoy somebody. And, and it, it, but, but here's the thing, going back to the Brexit lesson, if no one makes a move because they're afraid to annoy someone, you end up with a mess. So you've got to make a move on either on either substance or process at some stage. I think.
0: Okay, John. Risking annoying someone is something that academics or can can lead on. I suspect in terms of in terms of the question. I suppose we're thinking also on you know political parties across the island on on any side of the argument, right? So a lot of discussion so far is focused on those who perhaps are arguing for change, but that's only one side of of the wider conversation. I suppose, Lisa, again, you know, do you think the political parties are doing enough to prepare themselves and the electorate for conversations that might be happening or are to come?
2: Hmm. Um, I would come at this uh, from the Northern Ireland perspective. um, And I would perhaps counterintuitively suggest that in order to best prepare um, an electorate for this type of conversation um, and I do I would agree with previous comments about um a sense of it being iterative and I do think it's that we are at an early stage if this is coming and I would I don't think that there's any inevitability um in terms of constitutional future and the trajectory except to say that this it is a live question but for Northern Ireland political parties um I think best prepare by talking less about the constitutional question. Um, and that for and against uh, kind of end focused um, conversation, because our whole politics here has been defined about that. Um, you know, our our troubled history and um, kind of hinges on that. Um, yeah, on that uh, turning point that is so divisive in terms of unionist, nationalist, United Ireland, United Kingdom. Um, and one of the main concerns that we see among the electorate in polls at the minute is around political stability here, because of the nature of the power-sharing government. We're all very familiar with it, the, the um, frequency of breakdown, um, and the challenge uh, for good governance um, here, because everything has to be across that, um, both taking in both extremes and um, different political perspectives. So. I kind of think that if we could, um, if political parties could instead focus, instead of focusing directly on a constitutional question, on the the threat of it or on a momentum behind it, depending on perspective, if they could um, orientate policies towards cha- tackling governance challenges, That are facing and governance opportunities that are facing people in Northern Ireland, particularly, and also in Ireland or in both across the island of Ireland. Um, I think that could depoliticise the debate. It could counterintuitively help better prepare for that normative good um, political debate around constitutional futures, regardless of what that end point looks like. if we could engage with those more substantive policy issues around healthcare around north south cooperation on economic issues around the environment and facing um you know climate crisis uh, and um kind of coordinating across the island of ireland i think that that could be a, a normative good role for political parties to play um particularly in northern ireland because uh we um it's not uh, we don't need to find out where they stand on these issues you know they by definition the political parties here um are set up on a spectrum um that is that is already there and which is why i would also suggest and as we perhaps continue the conversation that there's a very important role for civic society um, and just bringing back to this question and um, it's really notable that this is popular consent this isn't parliamentary consent and ultimately it will be a, a voter and electorate and um, decision If that question is posed. So, the political parties, while of course are very crucially important in terms of um, kind of managing and directing a political uh, discourse of government, north and south, um, they actually, uh, their role would have to be put in perspective, I think, um, with the the broader importance of um, civic engagement.
0: Thank you, Lisa and Michael.
3: Yeah. Short answer for me, I suppose, is I don't think any of the political parties are doing enough in that, um, we, you know, everybody needs to do better. And it's precisely on some of the things Lisa was mentioning there, you know, um, uh, engaging with civic society, the humdrum of how uh, we we function as an island. Um, you know, if, if academics will be aware of you move cross border, uh, for example, you know, uh, to, to a job north or south, your pension doesn't move with you. Um, you lose your credit rating, very important for someone moving north south for a job, for example. Um, there's all sorts of things, uh, you know, your insurance, your car insurance. It, certainly, when I moved up here, it was very difficult to actually um, guess, uh, c- get my previous record, uh, driving record uh, accredited to a car insurer. There's so many things. I mean, we're so long after the Good Friday Agreement, and these haven't been dealt with. And that speaks to a profound lack of interest in the mechanics of the everyday cross-border experience how we live uh, cross-border and how we will then change that in the future i mean if we do have this seismic change uh, in the future it really will be seismic if we don't deal with these uh, simple everyday matters if we haven't thought it all through uh, in advance so i think that in engaging with uh, civic society i mean the trade unions the, the irish congress of trade unions is one of those organizations that through all of the conflict that has happened here has managed to sustain. A presence on both sides of the border. Amazingly, you know, considering going through things like the Ulster Workers' Council strike, considering the fractiousness uh, of of relations and working class life here, that they they managed to sustain such a, a sense of um, cross border and, and actually in real institutional um, um, uh, processes cross border over that period of time. They they need to be uh, talked to as with others. Um, I, yeah, I'm struck by what uh, you know Mary said there in terms of. You know, events and the fact that, you know, when this becomes a fact, then suddenly the debate is is galvanized. It becomes dynamic. It becomes interest. And that's precisely why we do need to have uh, the, the boring stuff sorted, you know, before we have that debate. So people are really uh, well informed. And we saw in Scotland when the debate did start, the gap narrowed significantly uh, between those who were for and against it narrowed uh, because people were beginning to think about it in real terms and in a way it's very hard for people to imagine it in real terms until that happens but it's important for policymakers then for politicians for academics for people who are working in those jobs where you have to imagine those things have done the research have done the work in advance so that when the public begins to see this as a as a possibility um it's 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 something they debate with and I, I do think, you know, uh, John, you know, uh, mentioned how unionism, um, has, you know, will say, well, this isn't something we want to debate about precisely because it's not something we're interested in. We don't want a united Ireland, um, which is their right. But they definitely could be doing more to talk about the future here and how they envisage a future where the majority population, I mean, the, the whole point of this statelet was to have a majority population two-thirds who were protestant and you know in the early years you know people often forget the early years in the 20s there were actually signs you know we talked about the king's speech earlier this year there were actually signs from unionists that they wanted conciliation that they envisaged some unionists were talking about including uh, craig for example who is later you know credited with some very fiery rhetoric Were talking about the idea that we need the, the way we can prove this thing will work is how we include the minority. Now, how are they going to deal with, how is unionism going to deal with, a majority Catholic Nationalist Republican population? The prospect of that, right? And how have they thought about this? Why aren't they telling us that they've thought about this? For example, they don't want um, positive discrimination in terms of the police service. Can you really have... I mean, we already have a, a majority Catholic Nationalist Republican working age population. Can you really have a police service that is very heavily majority Protestant policing a, a, a majority Catholic, Nationalist, Republican population? Can you really have only one flag flying on designated days rather than two? Can you really have ceremonies and institutions and all sorts of things which exclude things like the Irish language, which exclude an identity, which is, which is, which is a, a huge part of the life here? Um, unionism hasn't been engaging with that. How did they envisage a Northern Ireland which is inclusive, pluralistic, and how are they selling the UK? How are they selling how we're going to, why we should stay uh, inside in, in in the UK? In terms of uh, uh, politics down south, I did think it was really encouraging to see, and I mean you don't often see this, but on the primetime special. Uh, on RTE about United Ireland that Leo Varadkar and Mary Mac- Lou MacDonald weren't at the, each other's throats but were actually uh, chiming on 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 the, the question of whether we need to debate this and there were some really positive signs that actually people are willing to some extent I mean electoralism is never really put aside but to some extent to put it aside with this debate to some extent to actually engage uh, in a positive way we're seeing some within Fianna Fáil, Jim Callaghan um, Eamon O'Quaive always, of course, but, you know, in, engage in this debate. Um, I don't think uh, there's a tradition of lip service down south, of course. You know, we, we know that Sean Lemass was thinking one thing and doing the other sometimes in the 1960s. Um, um, you know, in terms of his his approach to the possible possibility of constitutional change in the north. There's a long tradition of saying we're a nationalist party, but not really being that all that interested in it. I mean, th- we can't afford that anymore with the parties down south. They need to actually engage with this in a substantive way because something is coming. The likelihood that some kind of question over this is coming is very, very strong, um, especially in a context where we have increased austerity, a Tory government that doesn't seem to be... Uh, 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 that, that we, we can't move, where we've had a Brexit against the will of the people who live here uh, in the north um all of these things are are pushing people to ask questions that they weren't asking as insistently 10 years ago
0: thank you very much again re- really fascinating responses to to that question i'm going to bundle together now a, a number of institutions cuz i'm in- interested in your thoughts on the different roles that institutions and actors might play in 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 this preparatory work Obviously, there there are the governing institutions, North and South, and people often talk about governments, but there are also legislatures, North and South as well. I wonder, are they paying sufficient attention to this? wonder about what role civil society would have in this discussion. For example, there have been calls for an All-Island Citizens Assembly to explore some of these issues, and what role universities themselves and academics can have in, in the discussion. So I'm interested in your thoughts about the relationship between the different institutions and actors and the preparatory work. You know, where should the leadership in this conversation be coming? Legislatures, civil society, uh, universities, uh, all at once, or are there particular priorities? Um, Really keen to hear your thoughts on how that all would link together given how much emphasis there's been on you know just evidence-based informed debate and not repeating some of the mistakes of brexit so there's a lot there and i'm going to turn to john who's done a lot of thinking about citizens assemblies to maybe share his thoughts on that
1: thanks colin i I guess um (laughs) universities if they're to play a valuable role in in any society should be trying to um inform relevant public debate what you know inverted commas whatever that means um i'd like I, to, to answer this i'd like to pick up on a, a couple of a, a points that both michael and and lisa said i would agree with michael wanted to slightly reshape the question as not about oh well uh are we having a debate about a united ireland or not but rather to say in 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 a way that's kind of to frame the question in a way that's more easily inclusive of unionists and nationalists is to say what kind of future do we want um and that's particularly relevant when you think in this post-brexit world nothing is static there isn't really a clear status quo in other words the uk is changing a lot and there's different ways you can have a you can have a uk so for unionists it's not just let's stick with what we have it's like well what kind of union do you want? In the same way for a United Ireland, what kind of United Ireland do you want? So I think there's something to be serious, to be thought about. For people who want to talk about a United Ireland, kind of not to do so, but to reframe the question about what kind of constitutional future do people want? And that is a simple twist, but it it might include people a bit more. I'd also kind of like to agree with what both Lisa and Michael said about... Um, this distinction between kind of higher level constitutional debate on the one hand, and as Lisa said, you know, people are actually interested in economics and health. And actually, Michael brought the the helicopter much lower to the turf and said, actually, people are really interested in really nitty gritty things like insurance, pensions. And one of the interesting things that I've found in work with Brenton O'Leary on an actual citizens assembly in Northern Ireland was that when you come in the door and you have a cross-section of the Northern Ireland population that you're bringing together to think about these issues. We walked in the door, maybe maybe, maybe naively or whatever, talking about somewhat higher level constitutional matters. And then when the citizens get hold of it, they quickly translate it into the kind of things Lisa were talking about, and more specifically Michael. They'll, t- they'll say, how much is an RTE license then? Uh, how many days do you have to wait for a doctor then in Dublin compared to Belfast? And you've got this wonderful tension between the kind of abstract constitutional level discussion and then the nitty gritty. And what's interesting about having a citizens assembly is that is that you bypass s- some gatekeepers. So I th- that sounds like a critical thing. But if you have some unionist leaders who simply do not Elected leaders who simply do not want to engage in a debate and you think there's good reason to have a debate. Well, actually, you can engage normal, ordinary citizens. And this is a really important distinction because people talk about, you know, unionists doing this, that, and the other, and nationalists doing this, that, and the other. There's a, you've, you've got a massively important distinction between the leaders and citizens. And you can have a citizen debate. You just, you just generate it yourself. And universities can take the lead in generating that if you think it's a good idea. Um, my specific answer to your point about an all-island citizens' assembly, this is an issue that rumbles on. I think people should think carefully about what what's actually going on there. Um, in work I've done, we have, we have had um, jurisdiction-specific citizens' assemblies, like one in Northern Ireland and one in the Republic of Ireland, and that is to is to mimic the actual real world decision making process, in which decisions are made in these existing political entities. And you want to inform decision, potential decision makers in those entities. If you have an all island one, what are you actually doing? <laughs> there isn't an all island decision making process at the moment. It might be nice to get people to talk to each other, but you'd have to for people who are advocating this, um. You want to have a very good defense as to what you're actually doing. What is it a proxy for or a mimic of? Anyway, I shall, I shall stop.
0: No, that, that's great, John. Thank you very much. Uh, Mary, the, the different institutional actors and the role that they can play in this.
4: There's, uh, there's one set of actors that you didn't mention, um, Colin, and that's the civil service. And I, I think they are a very important set of actors in all of this. Um, and I would, a bit like John has been doing, hark back to the, the Brexit period, and one of the things we know about the brexit period and the run up to the referendum here in the republic of ireland is actually that the civil service was working very seriously and very intently on how uh, on working out how the irish state would respond to whatever the referendum outcome would be and in the period since then the irish civil service supported of course by by the political system has been um has been adept at actually defining and communicating and uh, defending uh, Irish and, and Northern Ireland interests as well during that period and I think the civil service are, 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 a, are a critical actor in all of this because there is a constitutional debate that will happen that will be very visible that hopefully will be accessible but equally there will be much going on in the background which will be less visible in terms of how the civil service is 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 helping the the state to prepare for whatever the outcome of a referendum might be, and uh, so so I think the civil service um, is is an important actor alongside parliamentary institutions. There's lots of recommendations that have been made by um, perhaps Sinn Féin in particular about the mechanics of preparing and how institutions can can play into that. Citizens assemblies is is one um, white papers dedicated parliamentary committees. Um, I think greater contact between the institutions on the island as well would be would be very welcome in this context. I think there's a very significant role for the academic community, for the research community more broadly. But I think that has to be underpinned by uh, a very substantial uh, element of support, financial support in particular. I mean, we, we, we need to understand what's happening on the island what's happening between the two islands. But equally, we need to understand how unification has been managed in other parts of the world. Um, and, and I think research can bring and um, can illuminate uh, how we might approach Irish unity should it transpire on, on this island. And it would help us to, to contribute in a very meaningful way to the debate. I think polling has to get much better as well. I mean, just asking the question, do you or do you not support Irish unity, is a very valid question, and the answer is important. But I think the polling needs to be much more sophisticated in terms of really drilling down into those issues which are important. All of the issues that Lisa and Michael and John have talked about in relation to policy and in relation to just the the minutiae of how any future United Ireland might, might work and what preferences people have for that. And one other point I would make um, is in relation to the mechanics of preparing for a referendum but also the period of the referendum itself. The Republic of Ireland has quite a lot of experience with referendums, as you'll appreciate. That's not necessarily the case for Northern Ireland, certainly wasn't the case for the UK during the Brexit referendum. And one important institution in all of that has been the successive referendum commissions. Uh, and a referendum commission has played an important role in terms of helping to you know in terms of helping to stabilize the debate when it happens uh, during that period of, of of six or eight or twelve weeks or whatever the case may be. Um, and, and that's a model that perhaps different actors should be giving consideration to in the years leading up to to any referendum on this island, that some sort of structure, which can help to mediate the referendum experience um, is is available for voters primarily. Um, so they are just some ideas about about some of the the things that that might be worth um, institutions thinking about and paying attention to. Thank you very
0: thank you very much, Mary Michael.
3: Yeah, I agree with all of that. You know, there's so much of a job to be done by um by by institutions, research institutions, and the international experience so important, and and looking at the ways in which. Uh, others have done it and the mistakes that have been made elsewhere and how we can overcome them um, and i suppose thinking about you know it, it, we we have seen the ireland funds we've seen the the hea fund recently for uh, academic collaboration cross-border i mean expanding on that is so positive positive. Um, and talking about you know th- th- you know coming back to that thing around disinformation and this era of you know um social media led conversations and the dangers that we've seen during COVID, for example, of the spread of misinformation and panic and fear, uh, it, it you know we could just imagine what would happen if a, if a referendum was there tomorrow. You know, um, uh, you know, what would, would would it be on? Would people be saying, you know, you're going to have to pay fifty quid for your doctor's fees? And again, this is what people would be thinking about. You know, um, when you go to see a doctor, uh, I I still uh, walk into a pharmacy up here, even even nine years now living here and uh, sometimes I've gone in and and took my card out of my wallet and realised you know, when someone's looking at me wondering what I'm doing that I don't have to pay for my prescription Um, the other side of it is you've much better wages down set, you've much better social welfare everyone needs to know what the reality of this is and then what would happen if you have a a, a stage of, and and coming to what Mary was saying there, but the importance of the civil service, the importance of economists what happens if you have a stage of levelling up you a stage of you know, it's, it's, it's some of it's unpredictable what will happen in a, in a new economy an all Ireland economy, but certainly we can we can give people ideas of what kind of life they can expect and what kind of life they, they can expect on that very granular level and that can be done by government by institutions uh, one thing on universities I think it's very important, and this is something related to our bubble up here because it really is sometimes a media bubble but it's really important that universities stand robustly behind academics, uh, asking these questions and raising these conversations. We've seen people subject to attack online on social media here. Also, politicians asking questions. Of, I mean, I, I find this. There's been this very laughable idea of academic neutrality bandied about that all academics should be neutral up here, and um, which is a real. Uh, bubble thing because I don't think anywhere in the world people expect academics to be uh, to be outside debates or not, not engaged in debates um, but this this is you know it's been talked about that you know uh, u- universities like Queen's or UU are problematic because academics are voicing opinions um, and I think it's very important that higher education institutions stand very squarely behind their academics and speak very clearly when when these controversies emerge Uh, as institutions um, to the fact that, uh, you know, academics have freedom, not neutrality. It's academic freedom. And people are allowed to research and ask questions, uh, Mm -hmm. crucial questions, um, because you don't want the chill factor uh, coming here. You know, this is very fractious. It's potentially very incendiary, some of these questions, regardless of how much we try to deal with in a a, um, fair and in an even-handed and, in a reasonable manner, we will find that some people get very irate at the idea of raising these questions. And so I think it's very important that our unions, our our institutions are full square behind those asking those questions and um, very quick to dispel ideas that academics should be shushed because they they're doing research, which is difficult or awkward or, or which some people find problematic.
0: Thank you, uh, Michael. Uh, No academics are being shushed in this podcast episode uh, uh, today. Uh, Lisa, your views on the different institutional actors in this preparatory work?
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, I would agree with um, much of what has been said and specifically around the um, potential role of um, academics and also the, the crucial position of civil service. I think it's notable um, prior to the referendum in the UK on e-membership that there was a, a, um, I was about to say a ban but it was a government policy that there should be no um, official preparation for the, the prospect of a vote to leave and I do think in retrospect that was um, perhaps unwise and um, so there is a really crucial role to um, wrestle out some of those uh, policy questions at an official level. But, I wanted to um, speak back to something that I think John said in respect to the flux of post-Brexit UK um, and the, the kind of dynamism that we're in and the moving landscape. I do think when we're having conversations like this and um, thinking about potential change in constitutional status for Northern Ireland, U- United Ireland, etc., cetera, um, there's a risk that we uh, overlook um, change that is ongoing um post-Brexit UK, the the challenge of governance is, is real. Um, it's complex and there there are significant capacity questions, um, particularly for Northern Ireland raised, um, just in having to manage um, a very an even more multi-leveled governance setup and one that is that is novel and untested in how parts of the EU um legal key apply here um, and they we are a third country and that there's a specific north south um strand that can develop and has developed that there are new questions around east west and that within the uk the internal market um and the, the Uh, different trajectories of the devolved institutions in the UK even before you start thinking about constitutional futures there and on a purely governance level and there are very real complex um, issues to be wrestled out so I think one of the the important um, context, uh, contextual factors to recognise is that as we're having these conversations already there's a direct link between the challenges of governance that Northern Ireland and Ireland face in kind of working out the the new landscape um, and how to manage processes, how to work together, how to cooperate together, um, how to develop North-South cooperation, East-West cooperation in a very new context. It is is a paradigm shift. Um, And I think that that conversation and the outcomes of those conversations Directly lead into the the type of preparation that's available, um, and there is a very real capacity question if if we look at the legislative and um, the Northern Ireland Assembly's role, in which I think ought to be um, very important, um, just even because of the PR system that we have, um, in talking about um, policy questions and constitutional future questions, but you have to recognise that. Um, that
0: it's not easy. Thanks, Lisa. And I think that's an important reminder. Of course, that that we're talking about constitutional futures, but but in a sense, we're living through profound change right now. In the conversation, we're ma- we're managing the implications of a seismic change that has happened, and that takes me on to uh, the B-word: Brexit or UK exit uh, from the European uh, Union. I think what what's been striking about these discussions in recent times is people's reference to the impact of Brexit. Um, Recently, people have talked about, you know, Brexit as an earthquake, of of the dramatic impact that Brexit has had on these discussions. And so I suppose what I'm keen to know is, I'm keen to get your thoughts on that, uh, the impact of Brexit on these discussions, uh, why that is in particular, and where that uh, perhaps goes next. So, really, the next question is on the impact of Brexit, on what we're talking about uh, right now, the way that it has affected these conversations. We will start with with Lisa on that question, Brexit.
2: How long do we have? <laughs> we're on our
0: final few questions. You'll be delighted to answer.
2: Um. Yeah. So I I do think. In a sense, in short, I don't think we would be having this conversation if Brexit hadn't happened. Um, I think it has catalyzed um, uh, conversations around constitutional future of Northern Ireland and across these islands. Um, I think the process of Brexit for the UK revealed um, the extent of unsettlement at the UK domestic constitutional level, and that has raised a lot of questions around um, relationships between devolved and central government um, and the the nature of power balance within the UK. Then as the process has developed, um, the questions raised around arrangements on the border here, and I think one of the things that it revealed from uh, North-South aspect in the 1998 agreement was just the extent to which the North-South element had developed on a policy level and at a, a kind of societal level um, that we had never had to to look at that before um, in terms of assessing what North-South cooperation looked like, what um, the the different ways in which our supply lines across the island of Ireland worked. So I think one of the impact of Brexit that is perhaps not often um, flagged in these conversations is that it's raised that those kind of policy mechanic, kind of um, more granular uh, questions has brought those to the fore um, in the context of major constitutional shift and change. Um, politically, for Northern Ireland, it has Reconstitutionalized our conversations here and um, focused even more on uh, constitutional identities. Um, and there is that um, the new arrangements for managing. Uh, the border regimes across these islands, um, Northern Ireland has been rebordered, if I can use that, on both sides. So we have the new Irish Sea border, but also new um, hardening of the border on the island of Ireland, in, uh, in ways that doesn't require physical infrastructure, um, but is real. And those. Um, those questions—they're all on the level of a type of constitutional change—and um, so uh, I might have to stop because I could keep going. Um, oh, the impact of it—it um, it has really raised those
4: um, these questions.
0: Thank you, Lisa. Mary, the impact of Brexit on what we're talking about. Would we we'll be having this conversation if it hadn't been for Brexit?
4: Oh, absolutely not. I really don't think we would. I think Brexit has been the the tipping points and the game changer in terms of the constitutional futures debate. I think right now in the present moment, um, the, the the sort of the status of the constitutional debate, how far it might go and develop is dependent on the, or at least linked to the implementation of the protocol. I mean, Brexit in and of itself was destabilizing for the for Northern Ireland in particular, but for the island of Ireland more generally. Um, but the implementation of the protocol has sort of, I mean, it's a it's an unsatisfactory resolution um, and, and it's messy, but it's the only resolution that was that was possible. Um, and its implementation has been tortuous, you know. Um and and that that process that messy process of implementation has bred uh, instability and uncertainty and i think it's 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 that instability and uncertainty which is which is creating tensions you know and it's encouraging people to to look beyond the current status quo as a means of resolving the instability and uncertainty and it uh, it 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 impacts all elements of society and the economy so It's really been quite a substantial rupture and and I I do wonder if the implementation of the protocol could be stabilised, de-dramatised and if agreement could be reached on how the protocol might be best implemented um, and if if it had the support of the communities in Northern Ireland. Um, I mean I, I wonder if that would actually do more to safeguard Northern Ireland's constitutional position right now. Um, that it would take uh, some of the uh, some of the urgency out of the constitutional futures debate, if if that kind of stability could be uh, you know could 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 be achieved in in the short to medium term. So I do think there's a very close relationship between the implementation of the protocol and uh, the status and evolution of the constitutional futures debate. I think there is the potential and the capacity for. Uh, a somewhat easier implementation of the protocol to uh, to, to 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 mediate um, and to challenge the the urgency of of the constitutional debate itself.
0: Thank you, Mary. Um, John, Brexit, what's its impact?
1: I'll try and answer this in one sentence if I can. Um, <laughs> the the Brexit referendum, I think, has increased the likelihood of an Irish unity referendum and the Brexit referendum has also served to focus attention on how referendums are conducted in the UK. Full stop. <laughs>
0: Excellent job, concise response to you. Um, so again, that's a sense in which perhaps we mightn't be having this discussion if it hadn't, if it wasn't for, for Brexit. Michael, your thoughts?
3: I, I think Brexit has revealed a lot about uh, what public sentiment is um, and what relations are like North, South and East, West, when, things, when push comes to shove. And I suppose it's kind of cut through, you know, I talked about lip service earlier. You know, we also have lip service from the British government in relation to this place and the relationship to it. And um, Brexit has revealed the extent to which we're not that important in Number 10, in Westminster, in the halls of power in Britain um, it was a huge peric victory for unionism because I mean we have unionism at the center of government they're cheerleading for Brexit they're associating with the the, the right the, the far right of, of British politics the Farage's and co and actually you know what you know, this place doesn't get the spotlights in London a whole lot we're easily forgettable we're after all we're what is it a, a third the size of greater Manchester you know in terms of population Um, And it is, when it does get centre stage, at the very moment when it gets centre stage, actually, it leaves for a lot of English people, for a lot of people in Britain, a bad taste in the mouth. And also what it's revealed is, I suppose, the extent to which people aren't that bothered, or a lot of people aren't that bothered about the impact of Brexit here. They aren't that bothered about the ways in which our democratic rights here ...have effectively been ridden roughshod over, you know, very little consideration has been given to the fact that most people here didn't vote for Brexit. So Brexit revealed an awful lot about the extent to which the East-West relationship is broken and Boris Johnson's mendacity and the the failures to be honest and, and the failures to deal straight with people here during the whole process has 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 left people fairly fairly certain of exactly where we stand in this place and i'm sure for unionists i'm sure for for those who um who 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 believe very strongly in that relationship who believe very strongly in the uk it's been a very difficult a very worrying time and so uh i suppose that there's 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 a there's, there's an opportunity here, but also there's, Brexit has been a, a, a huge um, disaster in terms of relationships. And uh, one of the things we have seen is actually, to a larger extent, the, the you know, moderate tone, the conciliatory tone, the efforts to uh, try to find ways of um, pr- practical, building practical solutions to all of this by the Irish government, and from brussels have also shown that actually who has our back or who's more likely to have our back um when when the chips are down and i think that's the, the the psychological impact of that for a lot of people is is going to have ramifications for some time to come
0: thank you michael um just final few few questions i think what you just said there leads us on to the the, the next question uh, your reference to the irish government you'll all know that there have been various uh, new shared island initiatives launched by the irish government i'm interested in your thoughts on those but 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 perhaps more i'm interested in your view of that framework of conceptualizing relationships on the island in terms of a shared island and i just wondered you know do you think it's a useful conceptual framework for thinking about relationships on the island now but also for reflecting on where those relationships might be going in the future as well, and um, maybe Mary first.
4: Sure, thanks, Colin. Um, I I think the focus of the Shared Island Initiative is rather narrow, to be frank. Um, there's a, there's a big emphasis in the Shared Island unit, um, and and it's a welcome emphasis. I'm certainly not criticising it, but it's an emphasis on. The notion of practical cooperation. Um, It's it's really all about deepening the all-island economy, uh, deepening connectivity on an all-island basis, uh, a big emphasis on supporting infrastructure and capital projects, um, and and all of which is which is welcome, but it is is within a conceptual framework which is based on, on, on deepening and strengthening relationships um, insofar as they are set out within the terms of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, you know, there's nowhere in the Shared Island Initiative is there any reference to constitutional change um, or to the notion of of, of Irish unity, um, and that has been the emphasis that the Michal Martin has placed on on the Shared Island Initiative, and and it really is his baby as well. It's it's his creation. Um, I think what will be interesting to watch, actually, if I might be so bold as to say it, is the Higher Education Authority's North-South Research Programme, which is uh, a €40 million programme aiming to encourage cooperation between universities North and South. Um, I think it'll be very interesting to see what kind of research is supported by this shared island initiative in the context of that particular North-South programme. If there is a big emphasis on STEM, for example, in terms of successful applications, that that says something. And um, if there is uh, a lesser emphasis on the arts, social sciences, humanities, and discussions—you know, like the kinds of discussions we're having about about policy and um, about the constitution—that um, uh, that that would be quite revealing, I think, in terms of uh, what what is the the, the concept behind the shared island initiative and I, I would also say it hasn't enjoyed much press, the shared Island initiative you know I, I would query the extent of its reach and um, you know again be beyond a a, a very narrow cohort of of, of, of of groups and 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 individuals. Um, so I think it's its capacity to engage the public to spark debate has been quite limited th- thus far. Um, so it's 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 certainly a welcome initiative. But at the same time, um, how significant it is for discussions about the constitutional future, I think, is something that remains to be seen.
0: Thank you, Mary. M- Michael, the the shared island concept.
3: Yeah, there's certainly a lot of money up for grabs. I mean, it, well, a, a fair amount of money up for grabs in these in the initiative in terms of the broader broader uh, scheme and also in terms more narrowly. Uh, of of the likes of um, the the HEA fund for for uh, academic work for the next uh, four four years I think five years, um, but uh, yeah I I I echo what Mary said there you know we really need to think about how people experience um, uh, how people experience the prospect of a shared island in in term in terms of those things uh, that's, uh, that that relate to politics to arts to culture to our everyday lives um, and. It's, of course, the focus on on the economy is really, really important, and and STEM is important, but um, it I do I agree wholeheartedly as well that we're we're not kind of seeing a lot of um, a, a lot of visibility to this. Um, the the the, um, the optics aren't always great in the sense that one wonders is the is the is the is the government down south engaging in this debate because the debate is kind of hurtling towards them. Or because and and because they they kind of feel they they need to uh, because the, the 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 base is somewhat uh, uh, wrong footed some of them, or because they really want to engage in the genuine prospect of constitutional change, but broadly I mean it's good to see these things happen. It's good to see people talking about uh, w- will we have a high speed rail network between Belfast and Dublin? How that would change our lives. Uh, it's 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 great to have conversations about. Uh, those exciting things that could actually make a lot of difference to people every day, and to see academic support to do that. So, the, the more of, we can see this in the next number of years, um, the, the better.
0: Thank you, Michael, John.
1: Well, um, just to follow on from that, I think the I think everything Mary and Michael have said about the the shared island unit raises the question of whether how what the what the Irish government is thinking about. A different possible unit or something else which has a different particular focus um, and that is to s- spell out the Irish position on potential Irish unity um, that might be a, a different unit or a different uh, you know bit of government and what's inter- interesting is whether or not the government thinks it's a good idea to do that and why what and why isn't it doing it um is it simply does it the irish government simply think it's far too sensitive and would be disadvantageous to put its cards face down on the table in a straight-up conversation with unionists in northern ireland and say look we all know this is illegitimate Debate. We know you don't want a united Ireland. To be perfectly frank, neither do we. (laughs) Maybe. Um, But here's the thing. Um, The the Good Friday Agreement allows for a referendum. It could happen tomorrow if the Secretary of State wanted. Uh, it, It could be a very strategically wise thing for unionists to trigger a referendum tomorrow for strategic reasons, to win it and not have another one for seven years. I mean, who knows what's going on? The the UK government say they're not going to have a referendum. The UK government say loads of things and then do the opposite. So, you know, there could be a referendum tomorrow, or opinion could change. There could be some fairly soon. So at the minute what's happening is the Irish government is not saying anything about about really important elements of its position on that referendum, in the run-up to it and after to it. And, after, and that means that there's a massive hole in any informed debate. And it means that if you're trying to engage unionists, if as a, from an Irish government perspective, full of Irish parties who believe in Irish unity, what you're basically saying to unionists is, look, engage with this thing about a united Ireland, but we're not going to tell you what it is. Because we are too scared. It's <laughs> too sensitive. So we'd set up this other thing, which is all about building roads and bridges and whatever it is and given money to academics, whatever that's all about. and But we're not gonna tell you straight up whether Northern Ireland will continue to exist as a political entity in the United Ireland. So, I mean, how can you even begin to have a debate about this if you're not going to even uh, engage with some of the basics of the contours of the thing that you profess to want? And at the same time, expect, sincerely expect, the people who don't want it to engage with you in a debate. Um, you know, it, it it's kind of mind boggling really that you could would expect that to happen. So if you're kind of more on the deliberative democrat or uh, like let's have a really a good informed debate and let the cards fall where they will, type of approach, you would say, Look, we know you don't want this, but this is what it would look like. Cards on table time. Um and and that is not gonna happen under this shared island unit, because that's about building bridges and roads and canals or whatever it's about. So the question it begs is whether there should be another one, which is an 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 explication of detailed
0: unit. Okay. You can't have too many government units, that's a uh, key in terms of this. Um L- Lisa Shared Island.
2: Um yes, I would uh, just echo what has been said and also I guess um there's going to be an inherent limitation in how much a shared island initiative and unit can achieve when it comes from just one part of the island. Um, If it had come through the north-south ministerial council, um, that kind of initiative to look at um, transport links and the uh, development of infrastructure across the island, that would have perhaps been um, more significant perhaps more useful but I think as it is, um, the shared island in principle I think is valuable but in practice because of the limitations it's not an Irish government setting out their um, detailed position in respect to constitutional future nor is it a a truly north-south shared initiative to build capacity across the whole island. And so it almost uh it doesn't quite hit on either. Um and but I would I would recognise that it is a valuable principle and um, to to try to work out uh, how best to share this island. I think that's um speaks to the heart of this conversation um, and the, the issues raised, but practice uh, lacks a little something.
0: Thank you very much, Lisa and I think following on from that Again, as as Maria said, it'll be absolutely fascinating to see, you know, the the types of projects that do end up getting funded by by these sorts of initiatives, and and perhaps that will be telling as to some of the questions, you know, that Michael Lisa and John have also raised as well about what it really is is all about in the in the longer term. You'll be all absolutely delighted to hear that this is my final question. It's been a a wonderful discussion you could talk to you all week about all this stuff i'm sure (laughs) you would not want that to happen but uh, this is a slightly unfair final question right um but a lot of us think about the future and you know in the discussion today we've talking about framing the conversation in terms of future or futures so i'm going to ask you to engage in an entirely unfair exercise and prediction about the future um, if we were having this discussion in 2030 or 2031, let's say 2030, let's say we were having this and probably the the technology will be light years ahead by then in terms of how we might be doing this. what do you think might change? What do you think if we were having this discussion in 2030? What do you believe, based on what you know now and what you can see in the trends that are happening, what do you believe might have changed uh, by 2030 uh, around this discussion? So totally unfair question, but I'm going to ask it. uh, Predictions about the future 2030. What might be different about this discussion in 2030? And I'm going to start with Mary. (laughs) Uh,
4: I was going to say thanks, Colin, but not really. (laughs) Um, I think um, well, I, I think the very configuration of politics on the island, and maybe particularly in the Republic of Ireland, I mean our last election in 2020 was was what's been labelled an earthquake election. Um, and, and I just I, I wonder what the political landscape will look like in 2030. You know, who will, will Fianna Fáil still exist? Um in Northern Ireland, what shape will unionism take? Will it be as fractured as it is today? Or will it have united into a single force, maybe in response to some of what we've been talking about? What size will the middle ground be in Northern Ireland and, and on this side of the border as well? And what sort of influence will the middle ground have? Um, and I think the dynamics of, of that political reshaping and reconfiguring will be, will be very important uh, in terms of the extent to which the constitutional debate will be prioritised as or, or not um, in an Ireland of the future. I think EU membership for the Republic of Ireland is also something that really um, must, must be considered in all of this as well. I mean, a lot of this discussion that we're having today is taking place against the backdrop of really quite substantial changes being contemplated by the European Union, um, particularly in relation to the economy, um, but but also in relation to the environment, for example. Um, And more broadly than that, then the the, the geopolitical landscape and the place of the United States in the world. um, I think all of these will will have a bearing on the kinds of conversations that that, that we're having by the time 2030 uh, rolls around. So I can't make any hard and fast predictions about what that landscape will look like. But I think these are some of the moving targets that we need to pay attention to in terms of um, in terms of how the constitutional debate plays out in the future
0: thank you very much mary michael if it was 2030
3: what would we be talking about such a difficult question colin <laughs> um you know uh one would, one would hope i suppose i i always try and think of of, of gramsci's motto you know um uh, optimism of the whale and pessimism of the intellect so i'll try and do a bit of both here one would hope that in britain politics have settled somewhat that we're past the you know, um, the Daily Mail nonsense of, you know, each fresh day brings another country apparently leaving the EU and, you know, the chauvinism that's grown in Britain. I mean, the, the, just the hysterics that's happened in the, in, in, over the recent debates were a long way from that 1990s period when the peace process started. Um, uh, and, and certainly there, there, was a, there seemed to be a much calmer, much more rational approach emerging in Britain. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, we're going to get back to uh, a more moderate, more sensible politics there. Uh, we'll we'll likely have a, a Sinn Fein first minister here uh, if 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 we haven't got to the referendum already. And certainly, the the you know with the census results coming out this year, um, and with the the, the the continuation of this debate. I think it'll be a lot less speculative and much more actual and um one would hope that with the development of um, um shared island initiatives down south that some of these policy some of the policy work is beginning to come to fruition so so my my, my feeling is and I, and especially with you know the strength of the, re, the the republic's economy uh you know the changes that have happened in irish life um sin, since since the, the 1990s how this is how this is dramatically changed as a culture uh, become much more open progressive uh, with all our problems uh, culture than i remember growing up in dublin when we had uh, you know a mu- much when we had the, the debates around the x case and when we had the, when we had the debates, debates around contraception and all sorts of stuff um you know a society that's that's uh, managed to become much more open and welcoming um in terms in terms of uh, it's it's welcome to uh, other countries, people from other countries, to newcomers. You know, we've got such a a, a large proportion of newcomers. And um, obviously, there are problems in terms of the far right there and and all of that. But on balance, doing doing reasonably well. Um, a society that's much more open in terms of LGBTQ people. A society that's much better for women. Um, getting there. um th- there are there are lots of things to be to sit, to look when you look down south to be proud of. And I think. Uh, when when the, when the debate comes in in ten years' time, we're, we're still having these conversations. I think um, people will be looking at uh, a, a, a very changed society and hopefully be, be able to have a much more calm, rational post-Brexit. That's all in the distance and forgotten debate about uh, creating a better a better society on this island.
0: Thank you, Michael. Lisa.
2: Hmm. Um.
3: So I think we.
2: It's hard to it's hard to distinguish between uh, what one intellectually predicts and what uh, you hope um, will be happening. Um, But I would say that I think we will The trajectories, the political trajectories that we're on, and Mary mentioned that uh, rise of the middle ground here, if we look at the demographics and Michael was also mentioning the census, um, those who identify uh, as neither unionist or nationalist are consistently um, the largest section of Northern Irish um, electorate and population. will, I think, continue to have um, an increasing influence on uh, our politics here and the political makeup um, and down south, the the rise of Sinn Féin and the growing support there. Um, I think that those trajectories look like they are um, going to continue. But I don't think that that inevitably means that we're heading towards the the, um, specific border poll constitutional change that we've been talking about. I do think it means we're heading towards um, a conversation that is more focused on um, how we cooperate well. Um, On the island of Ireland, there is post-Brexit a very clear momentum and um, kind of a pragmatic case for more North-South cooperation um, because of the unique position of Northern Ireland with the EU um, and the, the way those governance challenges have to be worked out. Um, so I think we will be um, in a more developed place in terms of our North-South cooperation. Um, but I don't think that that inevitably means that um, we will be closer to uh, a border poll question. I may be completely wrong in that. Um, I would also flag that by 2030 we will have had a first um vote on the continuation of the protocol, um articles five to ten in 2024. That is that is very significant. And I think that um the not just the outcome of that um vote, but the the nature of the the debate um in Northern Ireland will be a really good indicator for um, how normatively good um, our conversation is um, and where politics is going here. Um, I could also mention Scottish independence which is also a a contingency factor. in the SNP, so uh, there's lots of there's lots of movement um, going on. Uh, I'm not sure that I made any real hard prediction there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's fine, Lisa. That's great. John, 2030.
1: Uh, thanks, Colin. I think if we were to resume this conversation in 2030, my my bet would it be would be that it would be pretty similar to what we're what we're talking about now. Um, I think a lot hangs on the two things that Lisa just mentioned: the protocol in Scotland. Um. I think, my, I think, if the protocol sticks and we still have it, then um, we probably won't have a border pole. I think if the protocol falls apart and we end up with a, as a result of that, some version of a hard border, north south, I think that's a big um, trigger for moving, um, kind of soft Catholic. Attitudes towards um, much more in favour of Irish unity, which and and at the moment they're in favour of staying in the United Kingdom. Um, my bet would be the protocol would stick, and that that won't happen, and that we won't have a border poll because um, not only will all Protestants not want one, but the significant chunk of Catholics who want to stay in the UK will continue to do so. But the the debate will keep will keep bumbling along. The second point of Scotland. And as Lisa quite rightly highlights that, um, I think if Scotland were to go in a second referendum, I, I mean, I, I think that would be a kind of a psychological shock for unionism. I'm not so sure about this. I'm kind of speculating, but I'm guessing it would you'd have to question that, well, what, what, what's your, what, are you, what is this union you're in? It would look really odd on a map. You're know, even looking at it. It's like Northern Ireland and England. Um, wow so you'd have to wonder what, what that would mean in the minds of, of unionists, you want to be loyal to something and it, and this and half, it's after disappearing, so would that make you kind of rethink, crikey um, maybe a, maybe that would be a jolt to kind of reconsider the potential value of, of um, a united Ireland, my bet uh, would be that Scotland that there will be a referendum, and Scotland won't be independent, it'll vote to stay in if I had to bet on it um, precisely because of the EU situation, you'll have a rerun of the whole debate of how you would manage the border between Scotland and England, how you would manage differential currencies, how you would navigate, um, the customs differentials, um, standards differentials. It would be Brexit mark II. people would suddenly realize it would be a chaotic mess. If you couldn't get independence the first time, I don't think you've pretty much a hope in hell of getting it this time. But I'm I'm often wrong, which is why I stopped betting on the horses <laughs> about twenty five years ago. Um, but my bet, all all things told, would be pretty much as you were an insignificant part because of the points Lisa made about protocol in Scotland.
0: Thank you, John. Well, maybe we can agree to end today that we'll do this in 2030 and we'll see who's, who's right and whose bets uh, have paid off. Well, uh, this is the end of, of the episode. And I just want to thank you all for sharing your insights as part of this series. It's really, really been a fascinating discussion and I could go on and go on and go on and talk to you much longer, but we have to draw to a close. Just want to wish you all well in your ongoing work that you've outlined today. As you've all said, there's no doubt the conversation will continue, but as should be clear to our audience and listening to this podcast, that conversation is going to be much better informed as a result of the excellent evidence-based contributions that you all are making to this discussion. So I think you, I want to thank you all and finish by thanking you all for your wonderful contributions to this episode. Thank you. Please subscribe and rate this podcast. That will also help others find it. The podcast can be listened to on the Queen's University Belfast website and also on iTunes and Spotify.